A desperate surgeon. No sign of the four-year-old. An issue. We hold great concerns. Cleo was taken. 18 days of asking, where is Cleo? What's your name, sweetheart? After nine sleepless nights, Ellie and Jake once again sit down in front of a TV camera, revealing the final moments prior to Cleo's disappearance. I put her to bed, I tucked her in, I made sure her sleeping bag was completely tucked under her mattress. I made sure she was warm. It was going to be quite a windy night. It was overcast. Welcome everyone, I'm Natalie Bongiolo and joining us for this episode is producer Sandra DiGirolamo who navigated that interview for Ellie and Jake. From the UK, senior broadcast journalist at NewsHour at the BBC, Laurence Dubliev. As always, investigative journalist Kristen Shorten is with us and also reporter in Carnarvon at the time, Jackson Barrett. Sandra, I just wanted to start with you. You flew to Carnarvon for this interview on Channel 7's current affairs show, Flashpoint. Given the urgency and how desperate this situation was, were you feeling personally apprehensive? Yeah, I mean, I suppose like everyone else, I think I had felt that terror rip through me days earlier when we'd heard about this little four-year-old girl missing from her tent. I'd lost sleep thinking about it, wondering what happened to her, who took her. And so on that day, it was early Monday morning flight to Carnarvon, a sea of fluoro at the airport as there is on a Monday morning. And, And Tim McMillan and I have worked together for a long time. And so I suppose for us, it was mixed emotions. We hadn't spoken to Ali and Jake directly at that point and, and yeah, we didn't know what to expect. When you got to Carnarvon and you first laid eyes on them, I mean, did you have an mm. impression of how they were holding mm. up? Yeah, I think for starters, it's important to know why they were doing this interview. It wasn't something they necessarily wanted to do. They weren't, you know, excited about the prospect of being on TV, of sitting down in front of a camera. They they probably wanted to be anywhere else but doing that mm. at that time. And the only reason they were doing this, the only reason they were doing this was in case it helped bring Cleo home. They wanted her home. They thought maybe someone would see this interview and come forward maybe someone would feel guilty they wanted to speak directly to whoever had taken her and you know beg them to bring her back they must have been completely terrified in this situation like you said mm. this is not a situation anyone wants to find themselves in were they quite stoic or did it feel like they were almost completely bewildered they were tired mm. they were tired they were desperate That's why they were doing this interview in the first place. I found them to be honest and open and generous and kind and down to earth. And to be honest, completely and utterly terrified. Did you and Tim have much of an opportunity to chat to them prior to the cameras being there? Yeah, look, we did. We spoke to them both before and after the interview and the police were present for all of those conversations and for the interview itself. And I'm not going to repeat what was said in that room before the interview because it was a private conversation and I've never breached their trust like that. And not because there was anything untoward, but simply because it was a private conversation. And I suppose I'm not here to tell their side of the story. I'm sure that They'll do that themselves one day in in a way that they want to, in their own words, in their own way, and we should allow them to do that. But I will say that I found them to be 
tired was the first thing that struck me. And what's really interesting is when you walk into a situation like that, I walked into the room and to me, they were like friends. I knew exactly who they were. I'd watch them on the news every night. I knew their background. I knew their family. I knew what they did for a living. I knew them. And I think we all felt like we knew them, like we knew Cleo, but to them, we were strangers. Yeah, that's right. And for them to have to open up like that and wear their hearts on their sleeves. But as you said, they are doing it for one reason only. They are hoping that this is going to help bring their daughter back to them. Where did the interview happen? Well, we met them at the police station beforehand and the interview was meant to take place at the police station. But as you can appreciate for us, we've got cameras, lights. It's not a small set up and there wasn't enough room at the police interview room and so if you know Carnarvon anyone who knows Carnarvon knows there's a courthouse just adjacent to that police station so we asked the people at the courthouse if we could borrow a room it was a bit bigger than the one at the police station and as soon as we let the people in charge of the courthouse know what we were doing and why we wanted this room they were really keen to help and I mean that's the thing is that Everyone in their town wanted to do their bit to help. And so for those people at the courthouse that day, their way of helping, I suppose, was helping to provide us with a room where we could film the parents' plea for help. So we set up the cameras. Ellie and Jake and the police liaison officer took their time. They calmed their nerves a bit and walked over to us and joined us in the interview room. Okay, well, let's have a little bit of a listen to Tim speaking to Ellie and Jake. I know you you absolutely don't want to revisit that night. Um, so about 1.30, she stirs, she's thirsty, and then at about 6 o'clock in the morning, 6, 6.30, you realise she's not there. Yeah. Can you describe what that feels like? Heartbreaking, heart-wrenching. Scary. <sighs> Completely scary. I mean... How are you meant to feel? I have to say, even just hearing that back again like that gives me goosebumps. For me, it feels like that was yesterday and I just I just got taken back to that room in Carnarvon just now. But in what we do, we meet a lot of people at the very best or the very worst times of their life, right? Like you come into their lives at a really emotional time, good or bad. But for me, this one was personal. It felt real and raw. And I... I think it's because my little boy is the exact same age as Cleo. And so I remember after that interview when Tim and I were speaking to them and, you know, I remember saying to Ellie, I think what you just did was really brave. And I meant that. And I gave her a big cuddle and she was crying and I'm crying and Tim's got tears welling up and we said good luck. And I remember distinctly having two thoughts as they left the courthouse that day. And the first was man, I hope they find her. I really desperately, with everything inside of me, hope they find her. And the second was, I need to go home and hug my children right now. You know, I imagine my four-year-old taken, alone and scared, and it really affected me. And I think I FaceTimed my kids before I even got to the car park that day. I agree. I mean, when I watched that interview, the thought that came to mind was bravery because you can't help but put yourself in their situation and think, well, how would I handle that? How would I feel sitting there having to do this appeal to the public for my child that's been missing for, by this stage, nine or ten days? The stress that they would be under is unfathomable to have no idea what's happened to your child. And Ali pretty much says as much to Tim. No one I know of has been through that. And I would never wish for anyone to wake up and feel that feeling that went through me. 
I couldn't explain it to you. Criminologist Xanthi Mellor, she said to us that interviews like this can be absolutely crucial to an investigation. It Mm. is about connecting with the public. Is that how you felt, that this was maybe a beacon of hope? We know the police use the media as part of their investigative process. And so we knew that day that we had a part to play in this investigation and in getting that message out. And we took that seriously. We wanted to help. Often the media get a really tough rap for some Mm. of the things we do and maybe people over the years who have deserved that criticism. But I think in Cleo's story, we proved the good work media can do. And I can tell you that almost every single reporter and cameraman and producer and photographer that I met covering this truly felt it. This was a family, not so different to yours and mine, and we wanted to help. Yeah, absolute connection between the media and the family in this one. I just want to play another little part of the interview. It sticks in my Mm. mind because I think Tim really hits a nerve as to why we're feeling so intimately, I guess, devastated for Cleo's Mm. loved ones. I think a lot of parents have experienced that moment where you lose sight of your child even for a minute. You you feel sick. You... Overwhelmed with with stress, at what point did you hit that level? Straight away. Straight away, pretty much. I mean, who hasn't had that moment? If Mm. you have kids, right, Kristen, you will have also had that moment where your child is missing for a moment and you have a heart attack. Absolutely. And like Sandra was saying, I think the first thing that struck me when watching that interview was how just completely drained and exhausted Ellie and Jake looked. Like they were just running on empty. I think Ellie said in the interview that she couldn't remember the last time she'd slept. So I don't know how they were even functioning at that point after 10 days. But I guess having baby Isla meant that they just had to keep going. And Ellie said, you've just got to keep going. But yeah, look, the look of just devastation and despair was, yeah, it was heartbreaking. I think the part of the interview which most impacted me was when Ellie was crying towards the end. I love you. We miss you and we want you home. Just delivering that message directly to Cleo in the hope and chance that Cleo might actually be seeing that interview. Yeah, it was devastating. It was hard to watch. Sandra, I know people have said as much to you. It was almost difficult to watch. And it was heartbreaking being in that room. I'm sitting just off to the side and I'm trying to keep my sobbing quiet so you can't hear it on the camera. I'm looking at Tim. I know Tim really well and Tim's heart is breaking. We all know we are there because we are trying to help and getting this message out just might. And you've got to remember at that point, we didn't know how this would end. Our hearts were breaking. I think Tim did a really great job as well. He was so kind and gentle with them and I know you could see that he had to ask those hard questions like Jake did you have anything to do with Cleo's disappearance is there anything you're not telling us but you could tell it was even hard for him to ask those questions and you could tell he was trying to be very sensitive and gentle with them while Mm. having to ask the questions that a lot of members of the public Mm. were wondering Exactly. I mean, for Tim McMillan on that day, asking that question at that time was a first. Nobody had asked them that publicly before. And we all knew that there was that speculation. That's what people were talking about. And Tim's a dad. Tim's an avid camper. His heart was breaking for them. But as a reporter, 
he knew he had to ask that. And as a producer, I encouraged that. And we discussed it prior to the interview and agreed that the only way to ask that was to ask it straight up. And you saw by their answer, they had no issues whatsoever with the question. And I think for them, it was probably the easiest question. Well, let's play that part and let's have a listen to Tim ask that question. A lot of people fancy themselves as amateur detectives. Yep. Um, and there's always going to be speculation that mum and or dad might be involved and have a case to answer. So I have to ask the question, Jake, is, is there anything that you're not telling us? No, nothing. Anything you haven't told police at this point? No, nothing. So you or, or no one that you know has anything to do no, with nothing. Leo's disappearance? No. And Ellie, I have to ask you the same question. No way. We love our daughter. Exactly. And we want her home. After that particular interview, body language expert Alan Peace, who we spoke to in episode two after their first interview, he came out again and he said that their body language left him in no doubt that they were telling the truth. And that's what you were saying as well, Sandra. Yeah, I mean, I was. When I got back from that interview, I had a lot of people asking me what were they like and how was it? But the question I kept getting asked over and over again was, do you think they did it? And I was horrified. Because when I looked at Ali and Jake, I saw a shattered young couple. Their little girl needed them, and they had no idea where she was. And, I, I mean, it, it takes a special kind of person to hurt a child or to cover up the accidental hurting of a child, and I think that's the theory I kept hearing. And I just didn't think that they were those people. And people were saying to me that strangers don't randomly take children from tents. And I was saying, well... We used to say that strangers don't randomly attack young children in shopping centre toilets until it happened. You know, none of this stuff seems believable or possible until it happens. You know, and it happened for this poor family. And rather than create or enjoy, I suppose, the drama of blaming them or judging them, how about we wrap our arms around them and be good human beings and show them empathy? And I suppose that's how I felt and still feel. It was such a bizarre and almost unbelievable situation that people were having trouble wrapping their heads around what could have possibly gone wrong. Jackson, one of the first things that you did when you were sent up to cover the story was you spent a night at the blowholes. Can you describe what that was like and why did you want to spend a night out there? There was no one there by this point. Why did you want to spend a night out there? David Delaney and myself went up to help cover it and it was an interesting one because we had about seven hours notice we had a 7am flight and we got straight up there and within 12 hours of being there we were actually given the assignment to go out and spend a night at the blowholes so we got there on day six which meant that by 1.30 in the morning on our first night there it was exactly one week since Cleo had disappeared so 1.30 of course is when she had her last interaction with Ellie and Jake and And we were asked to stake it out until 6.30am, which of course is the time that Ellie woke up and discovered that Cleo was missing. It's a bustling, thriving holiday park in summer and in the middle of the day, and particularly on weekends. There was no one there that night. There was one car outside the caretaker's shack, but other than that, we were the only ones. We sat in our car. We decided to do sort of half-hour checks or reports, so we'd jump out of the car and we'd go for a bit of a wander and we'd record what we were feeling and experiencing. And the idea behind it was just at that stage, we didn't know if Cleo had maybe wandered off or if she had been taken, but had been taken by foot. 
So we just wanted to sort of experience and wrap our head around what the terrain and the conditions might have been like at that time. And I can tell you it was freezing cold. There were harsh, harsh winds coming in off the coast. It's an interesting coastline because right down in front of the park itself or the, the caravan site, there's this quiet little lagoon which makes for quite an eerie atmosphere at night. But just beyond that is the ocean itself and big thundering swell. And that's essentially all you can hear in the story we wrote for the Sunday Times. It was the soundtrack of just this heaving swell all night. It was windy. It's also really, really rocky. So, I mean, I've got a certain level of coordination, but without being able to see where you're going, it's quite a, even on the man-made track, it's still quite loose and you need to watch where you're going. So you can imagine how difficult that might have been for a four-year-old girl as well. It, it certainly required careful footing. As far as light goes, our night was lighter than Cleo's night would have been because we had an almost full moon that night. So you, you had some way of seeing where you were going and you also got the occasional beam from the lighthouse which sits on the hill, which probably adds to the atmosphere of it all as well. So, yeah, exactly seven days later, which was a, an interesting experience. The sun then came up at 5.45 and we got quite a beautiful sunrise, really. It was a slightly harrowing experience, but it made for a really good story to be able to, you know, go in-depth on if Cleo had wandered off or had been taken by foot, what that would have felt like. Well, Ellie, when she's chatting to Tim in the interview, she describes that early morning when the sun has come up, when she realises that Cleo is gone. Let's have a little listen. I stayed on the phone to the police. Um, we had to keep doing check-ins until they got there. And the whole time you, you're trying to look through tears. Um, I had other mums helping. Yeah, it was nothing that I'd ever wish upon anyone. Kristen, that moment when Ellie realises that her daughter is gone, you can imagine her just frantically looking around and thinking, okay, you know, she's wandered off, she's just going to be behind a bush, she's just going to be behind a rock there. But as Jackson's saying, there would be this part of you that knows that the terrain makes that almost impossible. Yeah, and Ellie said that she knew immediately. I don't know if she meant that Cleo had been taken, but she knew immediately that Cleo was gone. And she said that terrified feeling went through her straight away. And you can tell just from the timeline that police later released, Ellie did call the police within 20 minutes, you know, of waking up and realising Cleo was gone. So it wasn't like they searched around for hours before alerting authorities. And as every parent knows who's lost their kid from even a minute at the supermarket or a playground or something, it's absolutely sickening that feeling that goes through you. So one of those, yeah, just horrible feelings you can't even imagine mm. what it would be like for the hours and days to then pass. Sandra, did you get out to the blowholes? Yeah, we did. Look, after we recorded that interview, we hosted the Flashpoint program out at the blowholes. So we drove out there that night and... It's funny what you were saying, Jackson, because I remember standing there. For us, it was about nine, ten o'clock at night, and we were standing pretty much where Cleo had been taken because, obviously, by that time, the police had left and you could get in there. And like you, I looked around, and it was dark, and it was eerie, and it was really noisy. And so many people were saying at that time, how could they not have heard that zip open? Well, I can tell you that the sound of that thumping ocean and the wind, there's no shelter, it's exposed, it's loud. And there's no way a little girl willingly walks out of a tent like that. And 
I remember Tim and I looking down at the ground and at the tyre tracks. There's tyre tracks everywhere going in all these different directions, hundreds of them. And I remember we were just looking at them thinking, wow, how are they ever going to find her? Yeah, extraordinary. Jackson, on Tuesday afternoon, so we're now day 11, forensics are returned to the family home and this time they go inside the house. How long are they there for and what can you see? So they arrived just after midday and they spent pretty well a little over seven hours there. They were there until about 9, 9.30 at night. You couldn't see an awful lot. You could see camera flashes inside and, of course, the forensics, as they so often are in their full Smurf suits with gloves and masks and the like. So they left with two bags. So that sort of added to the mystery of it all, I guess, because no one knew what might have been in those two bags. But they were obviously just doing an assessment at the Illingworth Street house. It was the second day they'd been there and they were obviously almost sort of stock-taking photos, I think, because the camera flashes were probably the big one. And they were let in by Jake. This was the first time he'd been back to the family home, right? Yeah, I believe so. So he came back. I wasn't there at this stage, but we've seen images and vision of him getting there and letting them in, really amicable with them, obviously, and then sort of gave them the thumbs up and headed off soon after and let them do their thing, which I think was a feature of the way that Ellie and Jake went about things, that they were 100% cooperative and gave them room to go into their house and do what they needed to do. After seven hours of searching yesterday, they left with bags containing what we don't know. Well, yet again, when this is all happening, police come out again and reiterate that this is standard procedure. Cleo disappeared 52 kilometres away from the family home, so we asked police why they've been back here three times. The official response, her parents aren't targets, and this was just a routine part of the ongoing investigation. In a vacuum of information, people are trying to draw their own conclusions. Um, Sandra, were you hearing a lot of scuttlebutt while you were up there in town? It's funny, Nat, not so much while I was up there in town, much more while I was in Perth, because the community of Carnarvon, I felt, from what I was seeing, was rallying behind them. Everyone wanted to help. Everyone was hoping they might have had this little piece of information that might lead to something. So, yes, I heard the scuttlebutt, but... But it wasn't in Carnarvon, it was here in Perth. Jackson, there were some other rumours swirling around town which police were also trying to hose down. Yeah, there were. So there were also a couple of past incidents which were being chatted about as well. But, of course, the police, they said that they were looking for any evidence of a stalker. And then by sort of Tuesday night, Wednesday, I think they had ruled that out. They'd said there were no evidence of that as well. So that part of their search had obviously been completed and they were comfortable that that was the case but there also emerged a couple of stories of earlier incidents so one was from a few months before and that was at monkey mire so which is a, a few hundred k's north of carnarvon and that one happened at more of a you know an established tourist park a caravan park a woman told us that her son's eight-year-old friend had been filmed by a man in the bathroom at the toilets and that the police had been called out to that but i think the one that really grabbed me about this one was that the boy's father was right outside the toilet box. So just like in the Cleo instance where she was sort of snatched from right next to her parents, this one happened so close to parental supervision, which I think is one that grabbed me. And then through social media, we saw a post from back in July 2014 of a mother in a Carnarvon chat page who said a man had asked her daughter if she would get in the car and go for a drive. We only got a brief description from this social media post, but she said it was a male 
age in his 40s with a beard and he was driving a small red car. So I think that was another one that sent a few shockwaves around the place because in the exact same spot and seemed such a similar circumstance now. And was that reported at the time to police? Yeah, we believe that one was reported. Police did attend that one and we don't know where it went from there, but they certainly attended the scene. Deputy Police Commissioner Cole Blanche asked Carnarvon residents to check their abandoned sheds and other buildings and, you know, I think that just showed how grave the situation was that he was asking people to do that. What was the reaction to that in town? Yeah, I think grave is a really good way to describe it and that was the response. It was almost like an oh no sort of response, but people were also more than willing to do it. People at this stage were doing absolutely everything they can and I think going and searching your abandoned sheds or a car left out in a paddock or whatever it might have been in each person's circumstance was almost putting your money where your mouth is. All the posters were out, the stickers were out, but this was an opportunity for people to get out and help and I didn't come across anyone who wasn't willing and able to do so. Kristen, at this point, Prime Minister Scott Morrison reveals that the Australian Federal Police are now involved, but it's kind of cryptic. What did you learn about that? This is all sort of shrouded in secrecy, but on October 26, which was 10 days after Cleo had vanished, the Prime Minister assured Cleo's family that the AFP was using secret technology and tactics to help find Cleo. This was during a 6PR radio interview, and he said that in terms of technology and tradecraft, the AFP had some very advanced capabilities, leading edge, not just here in Australia, but around the world. And he went on to say, as much as I'd love to reveal exactly what some of those are, and how they're being used. We can't talk about that on air. But the AFP are there. They've joined the process. And, you know, I'm very pleased to say that they're helping in every way they possibly can through their intelligence capabilities, their technology and their forensic abilities. Now, by the next day, Seven News was reporting that these technologies included a reconnaissance spy plane. I Look, I went to the AFP and I asked them what they were contributing to the search. And they referred me back to WA Police as a lead agency. Mm. WA Police told me that while the AFP were assisting in some capacity, they could not provide specifics for operational reasons. So all remained very top secret and no one would reveal exactly what the AFP was contributing to the investigation. There were some reports that the AFP might have been able to access crucial images from spy satellites that were passing above the Blowholes campsite on the morning of October 16 when Cleo vanished and that if the right high-resolution satellites were above the campsite in the hours around when Cleo disappeared, authorities could have used the very advanced technology to retrospectively access and the make and model of a car. But while tons of satellites constantly passed over that area, the high-resolution ones were not as frequent and they only passed over about twice a day. So that was some speculation. There was also a report that the AFP could secretly access people's devices and computers and online networks without a warrant, so they might have been assisting in that capacity. And if I can just jump forward briefly to after Cleo was found, Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews said that she was very confident that the AFP's involvement had made a difference to finding Cleo. So she said there's a wide range of advanced technologies that AFP uses and they were there to support the WA police. The outcome of that has been the best possible outcome with finding little Cleo alive. So she was basically saying that the AFP's contribution had contributed to that outcome. 
Statistically, criminologists are saying the chances at this stage of Cleo being alive are slim. But Kristen, there's a special name given to children who do turn up alive. Yeah, that's right, Nat. So John Flint at the West Australian had this very interesting story around this time where he talked to an expert in the UK about how children who are abducted but are found alive are known as black swan cases because they defy the odds and statistics. So basically the criminologist told John that for a child to be held abducted and held captive for 18 days and then found alive is very much the exception in such an unusual case. It's ultra rare that children who are snatched are discovered alive. I mean, it's these sort of black swan cases. Famous ones include J.C. Lee Dugard, who you might remember was abducted in America and found alive many, many years later. She was snatched as an 11-year-old. There was also Elizabeth Smart, who was 14 when she was taken at knife point from her bedroom. Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus, they were only teenagers as well. They were kept in a basement in Cleveland by their captor, Ariel Castro. So these sorts of cases, they can definitely sustain the faith of the families of other abducted children like Madeleine McCann's parents who desperately cling to the hope of such a miracle. So given what we know about child abductions is that they're normally killed quickly. It's very extremely rare for them to be kept alive for 18 days and discovered alive. So that's what this black swan term refers to. Yeah, and they're the sort of cases that attract global attention. And the search for Clio, of course, is being reported in the big selling tabloids overseas. It's also being reported on networks such as CNN and the BBC. Laurence, can you tell us when you first heard about Clio? Was it early or later on in the search? It was fairly early on in the search. I think it probably was right after it happened because as soon as the story got prominence in Australia, I think it was picked up across the world because, you know, small girl abducted from her tent. I think in the UK it had extra resonance, of course, because of the echoes of Madeleine McCann disappearance, which was about 15 years ago now. And and that was also a small child abducted from her sleeping quarters. And, you know, the added... The dangers of the place where she was, she was near the sea, the fear that she might have wandered off at first. It, it, it was very compelling. And obviously, like any small child disappearing, the sort of thing that tugs at the heartstrings immediately. And I guess for anyone who's never been into Australia's outback areas, I suppose that idea of the remoteness and the ruggedness of the terrain would also make it quite fascinating for people to understand and to think about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I have to say, even though I'm an international journalist, I'm aware of the world, when I sort of focused a bit more on the area where she disappeared, you're constantly astounded by the emptiness, especially of that west coast of Australia, the distances, which are just so startling, the fact that most of the coverage seemed to come from journalists based in Perth, which is, you know, thousands of kilometres away. or And yeah, Australia, we all know that the outback is full of dangers. You're kind of notorious for having some of the most dangerous creatures around, the deadliest spiders, the deadliest snakes. Yeah, that's certainly added to the, to the fascination. Absolutely. Would you usually cover a story of a missing child in the WA outback? Well, that depends which part of the BBC you're talking about. The World Service, I mean, if, if you ever look at BBC Online, for instance, you'll find that all sorts of things are covered. And it did pick up the Cleo Smith story fairly early on. 
Now, the programme I work on, NewsHour, which is a current affairs programme, news and current affairs, which goes out twice a day, because it's an hour and we cover the world, tend to focus on sort of more global geopolitical stories. Obviously, we've done a lot of COVID over the last year. We've covered the Afghan crisis, American elections. We tend to, to go for a big sort of chewy subject. But we wouldn't usually cover the disappearance of a child. But sometimes a story comes through that is so compelling. And for us, I have to say, on the day that she was found, it was such a relief worldwide. It sort of got to the bar where it really was worth reporting on it. Now, it had been, for our listeners, we have a news bulletin in our program. The news bulletin stories had been covering the Cleo Smith disappearance punctually when there was a development or when the police said, we still haven't found her, etc., etc. Was there a genuine level of concern among people over there during that time when Cleo was missing still? I can't speak for everyone, but I can tell you that among fellow journalists, when we sort of looked at the story, there was certainly, yes, you know, there was this, oh my God, you know, this, this kid is still missing. And as the weeks went by, a feeling that it was unlikely that the child would be found alive and of concern, yes. It was a story, again, with the Madeleine McCann parallels, it did feature in, in, in the popular press in the UK. And I would say there certainly was an awareness of it. And again, when she was found, it, it made headlines everywhere. And you could obviously see the pictures of little Cleo. You could see the posts from her family as well. Was that all part of what gave it such prominence over there, do you think? I think on a day-to-day basis, it wouldn't have been as prominent, uh, obviously, as it was in Australia. I understand that it was everywhere, wall to wall uh, at one point. I do think, again, at the beginning, at the, at the end of the story, of course, the pictures, you know, you have a pretty little blonde girl who looks so cheerful and happy. It is the kind of thing that uh, news editors everywhere will, you know, pick a picture and, and, and use it. Again, if you think Madeleine McCann, I have a daughter who is now nearly 18, but she was the same age as Madeleine McCann and a blonde, little blonde, blue-eyed kid uh, when it happened. So obviously, it's the sort of thing that really focuses focuses your attention. And I'm sure that that was the same for any parent of a young child here. That's right. And I think one of the fears for people was, for instance, in the Madeleine McCann case, that she hasn't ever been found. And one of the fears was that mm. this poor family were going to face the same fate. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, the, the Madeleine McCann story has been kept alive constantly in this country, in the, in the UK, partly by the family who understandably has been unwilling to abandon all hope. And by also some tabloids that have, you know, picked up and continued the, the search, the story. I have to say, in part because there are still a lot of readers interested in it, and in part because, in a way, it's become a sort of campaign that there's a symbolic element to it, I think, which is not wanting to give up on, on this tragic story. Kristen, along with the Flashpoint interview, Ellie also posts for the first time a TikTok video of Cleo. Yeah, I've been following along Ellie and Jake's journey on Instagram and Facebook. And then this TikTok video sprung up on Tuesday the 26th on this newly created TikTok account. It was basically a montage caption, bring my baby home with the hashtag bring Cleo home. And it was a video montage of photos of Cleo with her family, her dancing, holding up a cupcake with a sparkler, a photo of her and her stepdad, Jake, all set to the song Home by Machine Gun Kelly and others. And 
it was, again, another heartbreaking, gut-wrenching plea for information from the public. It was viewed more than 66,000 times and it had 8,000 likes. Among the thousands of messages posted under it, though, there was a message that was basically someone trolling the family and saying to them, get off social media, you should be more concerned with where your daughter is, which Ellie responded to by saying, you know, it only takes me five seconds to post this video, which might help me find my daughter. And we can also be helping the detectives at the same time. So she basically responded to that troll and addressed that backlash, which was quite disappointing really that people would criticize them for appealing for information like that but yeah that was just another heartbreaking plea that the family made which was really very moving. Imagine having to deal with that I mean you're dealing with your daughter missing and you've got these idiots who are having a crack at you because you're doing everything in your power to find your child. Sandra 12 days did you hold out any hope? Mm. Oh that's a really tough question because I want to say yes because of the way it all turned out. And I suppose the truth is, I knew police would find her. I thought they'd probably work out what happened, and I desperately wanted them to find her alive. But I think that's a much easier question to answer in hindsight than it was on day 12. I'm like you. I would love to say that I thought they were going to find her, but my feeling was, well, this is so against the odds, and I just didn't think it would happen, to be honest. It would be interesting to know, those of you who are listening, what you felt at this time. Did you fear the worst? Were you praying for a miracle? One person who didn't give up hope was the man heading up the task force. This is what Rod Wilde told Tim McMillan. Rod, how confident are you at this point in time, almost 10 days on, of finding Cleo? Look, I I am confident. Um, Like I say, we've got a very large team of, of dedicated police officers that, uh, with the help of the public, we'll find out what's happened to Claire. So, listening to what Rod just said, I mean, that went against everything that the statistics were telling us. And coupled with that, we also knew that Rod said they had no suspects. Jackson, did you hold out any hope at this point? What was your thoughts? No, at the time, not an awful lot. I think at about this point of the search, things turned a little bit more dire and depressing in town and hope turned it into devastation. I um, was in the fortunate position to actually go to both vigils for the Sunday night one at one church and the Thursday night at the Catholic church linked to Cleo's school and even I think one of the big things for me is the difference between the Sunday one, it was we're praying for her return we're going to do everything we can and by the Thursday one I'm in this bizarre situation where I feel like I've been to this little girl's funeral. It was It felt like that That was the candle-lit one. It was so, so sombre. And to be honest, it was heartbreaking. So I think by that stage, uh, I didn't have an awful lot of hope. But you know who never gave up hope? And it was Ellie. You know, as a, as a mum, you can understand you'd never give up hope, right? You'd, That's right. You'd, you'd, be, you'd be praying that just one day... I mean, how hard would it have been for her to leave the blowholes? without Cleo and then how hard would it have been to front that interview and to hear those trolls that you're talking about how difficult would that have been for her but she never gave up hope yeah that's right as a mum you just wouldn't in episode eight we'll chat to a respected aboriginal elder who had serious concerns for the safety of bounty hunters who were scouring the land and Jackson you know a bit about that yeah, I spoke to Hazel for a story. 
She knows the land better than most. She's from Shark Bay, which is a couple of hundred k's north of Carnarvon, but she knows the land like the back of her hand. And she just had a warning for people who were coming up and might not have been super experienced, but coming to the region, whether they were bounty hunters or otherwise to come and search for Cleo. It'll be interesting to hear what she has to say. Thanks, Laurence, Sandra, Kristen and Jackson for your time. And for those of you on the journey with us, if you'd like to read more, head to thewest.com.au forward slash Cleo. My Name is Cleo is recorded in the studios of the West Australian newspaper. This podcast is produced and edited by Kate Ryan and hosted by executive producer Natalie Bongiolo. Audio clippings provided by Channel 7 and WA Police. 